Hello, it is Fel here. I'm just popping in before the episode to let everyone know that there were some very strange audio issues going on, especially on my part. It starts off kind of sounding like I'm a little bit muffled, gets a little better, gets a little worse. Again, I apologize for that confusion. Another point of note, at some point I say that pixels are CMYK. She meant to say pixels are RGB, so... Please disregard that and let's get on with the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the science behind spirituality. I'm Astra. I'm Fel. And I'm Honey. And this week, we are going to dive into color, color theory, and its applications in both science and the occult. But before we go ahead and get into that, I'm going to pass it over to Hanny. We'll do our What Happened on This Day. So on this day in 1947, Edwin H. Land first demonstrated his Polaroid Land camera, the first used self-developing film, at a meeting of the Optical Society of America at the Hotel Pennsylvania in New York. It's a bit of a confusing location. Um, this camera produced a black and white photograph in 60 seconds using developer and fixer chemicals sandwiched in pods with the photographic paper and film. After exposure, developing was initiated by turning a knob that squeezed open the pod of chemicals. And I thought this was quite an appropriate fact for the coming episode. Yeah. And just in case people are curious, it is currently February 21st, 2022. All right, let's dive in and talk about color, color theory and the science behind it. It's really, really fascinating stuff. So Hanny, I know you had a bunch of science written down. Yeah, so before we kind of get into the sort of occult applications of, of colour, we kind of need to understand like what colour is and where it comes from. So simply put, colour arises from an interaction between objects and light. And so for, in order for us to see light, i.e. electromagnetic waves, it's going to bounce off objects and back into our eyes. And our eyes will mechanically focus this light using our lenses in order for us to focus on an object. Once this light has been focused, specialized sensory cells called photoreceptors at the back of your eye will translate the sensory input into an electrical signal. And then the optic nerve at the back of your eye will carry these electrical signals back to the brain where your sensory information is decoded into the images that we can see. Because of the way that the projection works from the object to the back of your eye, the information actually comes in upside down so one thing that our brain does, for example, is actually flips the image upside down as well. So beyond this feat of natural engineering, where does the color come in? As we mentioned, light is uh, basically electromagnetic waves, or we can conceive of it that way. And the frequency of the light on the spectrum determines its color. So if you imagine light as a wave and you imagine the distance between the wave's peaks as the frequency, when the peaks are further away from one another, the frequency is lower and then we'll have a frequency that will appear as red. When the peaks are closer together, so around 400 nanometers, they'll appear as violet. We do also have electromagnetic waves outside of the spectrum, so like infrared or ultraviolet, but we as humans can't see these because of the type of cells that we have in the back of our eyes. Some other creatures can. So when rays from a white light source, so like the sun or a light bulb, hit an object and reflect off it, they're also distorted in the process. And this is caused by the molecular structure of an object. So this determines which light rays get absorbed into an object and which ones get reflected back. A really simple example might be a leaf. So you probably know that leaves contain specialized cells that allow them to absorb light in almost all of the visible light spectrum. So they do this so they can actually absorb the light to use it for photosynthesis. However, most of them also reflect green, so we see leaves as green. Or a more complicated example would be a chameleon. 
it can be lots of different colors because it has lots of different cells called chromatophores, which contain different pigments. And by moving these cells around, it's able to control which reflect back into our eyes and which are absorbed. I didn't know that. That's so cool. Chameleons are fascinating. <laughs> I, I actually was um, super interested this episode just doing the research because it, it's all the physics that I haven't done for like many years. So. <laughs> Since university. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So this process regarding the reflection and the absorption of light is also how things like pigments and pH tests work. So if you've ever had like a butterfly PT, for example, and these usually contain a compound which absorbs or reflects in a particular color range, but the color range can change according to the compound structure. In the case of a tea, when you add some acid, so like lemon to the tea, it will protonate this compound. Because of the bond structure within the compound, it alters the way that it reflects light and it changes the color from blue to red. Just so people are aware really quickly in terms of like terminology, when we say protonate, we just mean that we're adding a hydrogen to usually an oxygen, although it could also be a nitrogen depending on whatever you're looking at. It does change the absorption. It also changes like its vibration. So when we do IR and stuff, you also will see that difference. But just in case people don't have the chemistry background. Yeah, yeah, sorry, <laughs> good catch. This is relevant because this is not just like a fun science fact, but it's relevant because pigments are quite sensitive to changes in their environment. And so when we're going to talk about the archaeology a little bit later and how this kind of inf influences our occult perspectives, it's something that we need to bear in mind. This is also something that happens when we talk about fluorescence, right? This is one of the reasons why fluorophores work, because we get an excitation from a particular wavelength, and then typically it leads to proton movement within the fluorophore that then allows it to fluoresce in a particular color. It's also the basis of fluorescence as well, and you can get even more complicated and get into luminescence, but that's kind of beyond the scope of, of this podcast episode. So just know that the theory of color extends even beyond just like pigments and um, mixing the chemicals together to get pigments. It even is something that we use to study like fluorescence and really cool stuff in the dark of the sea. <laughs> okay, do you want to talk about CMYK versus RGB? I don't even know what any of that stands for. It just stands for the colors. Oh, are you serious? Red, green, blue, and then it's K instead of B because they didn't want to get it mixed up with blue for black. So cyan, magenta, yellow, black. Wow. Now you know. Now I know. Learn something new every day. So I'll start off maybe with RGB and then maybe we can talk about all that about printing and stuff because I actually don't know about much about CMYK. I only know that it exists because printing has to exist. So Okay, so now we know a little bit about how our eyes and our brains process colour. How does that work on a digital level? Well, if you think of a camera, it works in a similar way to our eyes. The lenses focus light, which reflects off objects around us, and this is projected onto an array of photosensors, similar to our own rod and cone cells at the back of the camera. These sensors pick up red, green, or blue light according to the filters on top of the photosensors, and the electrical information conveyed by the sensor can then be reconstructed into an image, as basically the sensory information becomes numerical values for RGB, and these are projected within each pixel, so you get the overall colour. So basically the combination of red, green, and blue gives you the overall RGB. It's pretty simple. Then we have something called CMYK, which stands for, for what's it stand for? Cyan, magenta, yellow, black. Thank you. <laughs> and this is a, instead of being additive, like the um, RGB, so you add together these values, it's subtracted. And the reason they do this is because stuff has to be printed on paper. And so you can't really represent a light value like you can on a digital screen. So they had to find a way of kind of replicating these colors by combining the um, inks that they had. To talk a little bit more about that, I'm actually going to vaguely address that when I talk about pointillism and divisionism, which is a 19th century painting movement. But basically, if you look at 
a like computer pixels, right? They're they're not, you know, like what I what I'm looking at right now, and I'm looking at, at Henny's face. <laughs> I'm not looking at if I were to zoom in really, 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 really close, I would just see various versions of like CMYK. Like I wouldn't see each of these individual colors represented because that's why things look funky when things are pixelated, quote unquote, is because pixels and like the way the higher the pi pixel value on your TV, the better the image, because when you are shining a color through a pixel, they will light up in one of those colors because pixels, you know, there's no there's no pixel that's a flesh tone pixel, right? Or there's no pixel that is auburn or something. So it would just light up however many, however much mixing would have to happen for, in order to make that happen, which is why things like purple show up horribly on camera because they're just impossible to represent, which is very sad because purple is very lovely. But if you're ever buying anything purple, don't expect it to look like how it does on the camera. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> and then when something is printed, yeah, it's just a nightmare. I work as a new media artist and like I do graphic design and it's just a nightmare because the printing is different than the online. You're trying to replicate what you're seeing on the computer, but they're two totally, one of them is additive and the other is subtractive. CMYK is an attempt to remedy how that is going to look. It's just the worst. I hate printing things. I hate it so much. <laughs> yeah. All right. So maybe let's go into some of the history behind color and how it's been used. In ancient times, I know alchemy is going to be a big thing, but then also how we see it evolved and then used within the occult community. Color is everywhere and it's really significant, right? I mean, how many times do we hear people say color correspondence? Like it's definitely a really big part. So I think it'd be really interesting to talk through kind of maybe how those associations came about. This uh... A very, I have like three things in this history section, although the later occult has touches on things that are still prevalent today, which is why I didn't put them in like the history section, but some of them will have on history. This history is going to be very, very broad because I could, I could probably make an entire other podcast just about color representations in history. But one of the things that's interesting is so ancient Greece, and a lot of people know this now, but it is still a widely held misconception that all of the statues and temples in ancient Greece were white because that is all that remains of them. And this was actually disproven like very early on, like they knew this as early as the 18th century. Can some contemporaneous sources even mention temples and statues being painted? But it is still a very common like cultural thing that we, like we all see them now. I'm actually going to share this on our Instagram. So if you haven't checked that out, because I'll have posted this before this episode is released, which is weird to think about, but I haven't posted it yet. But I will post an image of a museum that I went to that they did a digital reconstruction of Athena and they did a digital reconstruction of how she would have been painted. And they use a variety of methods through various forms of imaging as well as chemical processes, as well as looking at contemporaneous sources. And it is quite stunning and quite shocking. And they, they even like she was painted with a unibrow, which you could not tell from just the marble. So that was something that was interesting that the, the way that their faces were depicted, I think it can tell us a lot about I don't know, aspects of beauty standards we weren't previously aware of. So I think that's an exciting new development in that area but yeah so a lot of people were kind of disappointed even to find out that these beautiful marble statues were like garishly painted at least in my opinion they are very gaudy yeah they're very gaudy <laughs> they're like bright yellows i mean saffron was a very popular association because saffron is the world's most expensive spice even still today and 
back then it was definitely very expensive so it makes sense that they would use these bright colors because they were considered very expensive so of course you want to paint your gods these bright expensive colors like teary and purple or saffron yellow so you get these very garishly painted statue. I am. Um, I think it's really interesting as well if you come from a kind of more reconstructionist religion and basically all of your cultural base baselines are completely wrong and you, you basically have to go from these kind of ethereal you know very Victorianized white statues to something which is actually kind of I think I saw somebody describe them as camp because they are just so like bright and kitsch and gaudy and um, it's a re really interesting shift to go through. So we'll all definitely make sure we'll include a link to a Smithsonian article on that. And then I'll, I'll also have posted on the Instagram the reconstruction that they have done. In terms of like associations in ancient Greece, again, I'm not going to like really get into the nitty gritty because I there's just so many. But what's interesting is like a lot of a lot of deities. And this is true, even not just in Hellenism. A lot of deities throughout the world were associated with various jewels and their colors as opposed to necessarily just colors themselves. So like Tyrian purple was obviously a very expensive color, an expensive purple. So if a deity is associated with Tyrian purple, it's, it's, it's less that they were just like, ooh, purple, this deity, and more had to do with, you know, this expensive jewel or like gold or silver or this expensive plant that we have like saffron. So we see that throughout the ancient world too, that these colors of correspondences either have to do with riches or some, it usually has to do with rich things and money and things that are associated with, with royalty would be associated with deities. Then the next bit is alchemy. In the search for the philosopher's stone, also known as magnum opus, also known as the great work, alchemists outlined the process using four colors. Uh, interestingly enough, our friend Young expanded on these ideas and a sense of alchemy, the psyche, which he called, which if you remember from our, I think it was our second episode ever, uh, individuation, psychological version of alchemy. Yeah, I was rolling my eyes for anybody who couldn't like tell. You obviously can't tell because you can't see me through the screen. Anyways, the original color, the four colors that the one had to go through in order to get to the Philosopher's Stone was actually like that sequence of color changes was something that was found in one of the oldest known books on alchemy. I am not going to try and pronounce the actual name. But it's basically the physical and the mystical written by Bolos of Mendes in Egypt, about 200 BC. People think that it's connected with the four elements. So the four colors specifically are black, white, yellow, and red. So associated with the four elements. Then also possibly the four having numerological significance because the number four is known to govern like the form and construction of things, including the making of gold. And if you actually want to read more about this, I know Richard Cavendish has a chapter on it in his book, The Black Arts, which is something that we've, I think, mentioned before on the podcast. Great book. You should read it. It's a little dry, but you'll be fine. The initial idea behind the Philosopher's Stone, when it was taken out of context regards to spirituality, the idea was that it actually, like, you would have started with something that was really common, which is where a lot of people took the idea of, like, the base metals that you could use, these really common metals that you could then perform alchemical workings on to then form the Philosopher's Stone. And these colors were supposed to be kind of your goals <laughs> to like guide you through. So if it was black at first, great. And then if it became white, fantastic. You're like halfway there. And then it would be yellow and then eventually red. And it would kind of go to like red violet. So that was supposed to be marking your progress, even though it was impossible. <laughs> so it then, like Fel said, got turned psychological in nature. And Young decided to have his own go about it. So do you want to talk about 
how he bastardized <laughs> that whole process. So I guess I'll dance between a little bit the original intention and, and Young's intention. First step was Negreto and the blackening or melanosis. First step is sort of like cooking the ingredients until they became blackened, which I feel like is a very... A lot of alchemy is, is very... It's like using literal words to describe something non-literally, which I think is very interesting and hurts my head a lot. For young psychological alchemy, this became the shadow, our favorite topic. <laughs> so by confronting the shadow in young or in traditional alchemy by blackening these ingredients in this almost like a ritual putrefaction, what it, it seemed like almost, you would then do the second step, which was albedo, the whitening or leucosis, which was the next step was to wash away the impurities and introduce light into this, which seemed a, a lot to me like uh, the ancient Greek concept of catharmos, which is this idea that something is usually covered, usually pig's blood. Someone would be covered in pig's blood, like totally defiled. And then you would wash them away and through the act of defiling them and then washing that away, made them cleaner. So I thought that kind of had a comparison there. But for Jung, this was when we turned our attention to the anima and the animus, and the shadow is confronted, and we turn towards the transcendent soul. A light appears in the darkness. Next was Kitrinitas, the yellowing, or xanthosis. So this was a, a view of the emergence of the, quote, solar light that alchemists believed every person had within them. It was an awakening and an analytical psychology, which is Jung's movement, if you haven't listened to our shadow work episode or don't know anything about Carl Jung. This was the wise old man or woman, in which case, once you had wrestled with your anima, and animus would emerge as almost kind of a higher self on the path to individuation. And then Rubedo, the reddening, purpling, or iosis, was the final phase and represented the achievement and completion of the great work. For Carl Jung, this represented the attainment of individuation and transcendence. Seems to me like in alchemy, it gets less literal as things go on because there was a lot less description for this last bit, Rubedo, how it actually works. It was just like a lot of, <laughs> a, a lot of symbolism. It's interesting because like alchemy, when it was initially a thing, like in the medieval and the Renaissance period, it was a very, it was very much so a spiritual endeavor. And it was during the, or the Middle Ages that alchemy became more physical in nature and people began to like think about the philosopher's stone and truly make it more about transmutation. But really, like spiritually speaking, alchemy has always been about inner transformation and inner work. It's kind of funny to me that Jung came back and like, try to turn it back into that but he did it in such like a woo woo way that i i hate everything about it <laughs> so i mean it's good in a way because it brings back to like the initial purpose but definitely not in line with like what the ancient manuscripts say especially regarding like paracelsus and a lot of those like really early kind of foundational works yeah that was my thought too that almost young had brought it back to this idea of internal but obviously we we talked about all of our issues but yeah. It was one of those things that I think I think it's an interesting idea. And if you can work through the issues that you <laughs> you work through the issues of young and, and figure out what you think about the collective unconscious, I think there could be something there. Even this the four kind of main steps, like the colors and what he described, they're very similar to like what's happening alchemically, which I mean makes sense, right? But 
like the first step seems to be kind of the blackening is like the burning or the heating. And so it becomes black, it loses its vibrancy, the color to separate the like salt from the mercury and the sulfur. And then the whitening, like washing away the impurities, that would be this like distillation process, right? So you get a really pure solution at the end. That is the mercury or this, it could really be either like talking about the oil or the water contained within. It's really like the reddening of the purpling. So when you, at the very end, once you've done kind of all the steps and alchemy is also complicated because we have these four initial steps, but like then it got expanded to seven and then I think it got expanded to like 13 or 14. So it, it kept growing in terms of like what you had to do in order for these like steps of transformation. The very last step, which is that like reddening, it's when you kind of combine everything back together after you burnt it down, the embers, which are like red and everything is recombined and allegedly it would form this like brilliant red hue at the end but I don't think that ever worked for anybody so. yeah I read that the um the idea of the like transforming things into gold that the gold was actually red which I thought mm -hmm. yeah it was actually interesting because I read oh god I forget where I read this but there was something that said some alchemists who were familiar with the more spiritual like tradition recognized the fact that this transmutation into gold actually was symbolistic in terms of like unpurified gold and making it pure. Like that was that was the process, like spiritually speaking. So it's like you as a person are this contaminated gold. What's that I'm looking for? And you it's like gold with impurities, right? It's like you are gold, but like there are impurities that are like blocking your way or whatever. And so through these like cycles of inner alchemy, you can transmute yourself to then become pure gold and in, in your like your highest and your purest form. And so that was that was definitely a misunderstanding that some alchemists had in the medieval ages. Um, is that is that your cat, cat meowing? Oh, you could hear that. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was He's staring at me. So funny. <laughs> One of the misunderstandings that they had back in the ages was that they thought you just took a base metal when in reality we were talking more about the purification of something that's already really important, I guess you could say. Now to take it back into the more, the, the not esoteric realm. The thing that I brought up was the, in terms of how color theory was viewed through history and depending on how you view art, I guess you could view it as some sort of esotericism. Uh, 19th century painters in the beginnings of scientific color theory so divisionism, pointillism, and chromoluminaryism is, was a movement in the French painting schools during the 1880s. They're also called neo-impressionists or post-impressionists. So there was a new theory of color that was coming about, the color theory that we now have today. So this one stated that instead of painters mixing colors themselves, I would simply put dots of primary colors close together, which would then be mixed together optically. This is not unlike how pixels actually work. They were just doing it on a much larger scale. However, we run into the problem of CMYK and RGB here because when things are mixed together, it's an additive. So uh, we kind of talked a little bit about that earlier. So that's RGB. But when you're viewing something and you're like your brain is mixing them, it is, I believe, subtractive. Or it is, it is neither subtractive nor additive. It is something sort of totally different. So when your brain is mixing them, that doesn't quite get the effect that the pointillists were hoping to. This pointillist technique, though, was popularized by George Seurat after he made his famous Indumiage Premedi à l'île de la Grande Jatte, also known as a Sunday afternoon on the island of Grande Jatte, which 
even if you don't recognize that title, I'm 100% certain you have seen it somewhere. It is an extremely famous painting. There's so much merch with it everywhere. People use it in advertisements. I'll, maybe I'll also share that to Instagram. Who knows? But yeah, so this theory, they had what was called the color star, which is kind of a proto color wheel. It actually kind of looks occult when you look at it, but it, it is not. Problem was that they just didn't quite know enough that like the eyes mix colors differently than painting mixes colors but that was definitely a a massive a massive influence in the art world and sort of even though pointillism and neo-impressionism were a short-lived movement their influence influenced van gogh cubists it, it was a very and and eventually <laughs> pixels <laughs> so it was definitely a very influential movement uh, the pointillists were also very like haughty totty they were like our art is scientific it's better than other people's art but their science was wrong, so it kind of it kind of was funny. I also maybe thought it was worth mentioning that it isn't the only school of art to use this technique. Mm -hmm. um, Aboriginal.art also uses a similar technique, although I couldn't find out whether this was something which is more contemporaneous or, and sort of more influenced with mentalism or if it actually preceded it. It's difficult to find information on it. So, But I thought it was worth mentioning that they're not the only ones who've been using this technique. So I guess to transition more into the occult applications, I only mentioned alchemy just because like these these are more like modern occult applications that obviously a lot of these modern occult applications have their roots in history. Kabbalah and the Golden Dawn color seems to be important in this mystical practice and in the Tree of Life. But yes, take it away, Astra. Just about to hand it over to you because I was like, I don't know anything <laughs> about Kabbalah or Golden Dawn or anything like that. So for those that are unfamiliar with um, Kabbalah and the Golden Dawn system of magic, basically the manifestation of the universe from the most spiritual to the, mo to the mundane is divided by the Kabbalah into four specific worlds. And the first, I'm going to butcher these names and I'm so sorry in advance. I read them more than I say them. The first is Atzulith, which is the world of the names of God and is assigned to the element of fire. It is the highest and the most pure. The second is Bria, or the world of the archangels, and is assigned to the element of water. The third is Yatsira, the world of the choir of angels, and is assigned to the element of air. And then the fourth is Asaya, which is the world of the material, and thus assigned to earth. Now, within Kabbalah and the Tree of Life, we have different color scales related to these four worlds. So the king scale in particular is associated with Atzilith, which is the first world, and its colors are derived from the natural essence of color. Kind of like if you were to look at the colors through like a stained glass window, sometimes they're also described as the prismatic colors of the rainbow. So it's just like these very pure, like undiluted colors found in nature, like you would get from the visible light spectrum. The second world is represented by the queen scale, whose colors are what we perceive from reflected light. And then the prince scale represents Yetzira and is a mixture kind of mostly, but not perfectly, of the pigments from the king and queen scale. And then you also have the princess scale, which represents Asaya, which is a degeneration of the prince scale. And it's usually like speckled. So if you actually look this up, I'll include a link below, you'll notice that the king, queen, and the prince scales are all solid colors. But then you get to the princess and it's kind of like, like speckled, like you would see in glitter, but without being shiny. <laughs> I know how to describe it. You can look at it, look at the link that I include below. But generally speaking, the princess scales, they, they represent kind of a brightness or reflection of the plane of Azula. So I guess you can kind of think of it as glitter. 
if you really want to. But it's a reflection of the perfect world. <laughs> Kabbalah and golden monoclairs are really complicated. There's also something I think called the rose and the scales, which is something I think sent from Thelema, and I could be incorrect here. Basically, it's kind of the this circle where it shows the king and the queen and the prince and princess scales, but it does it in a very Golden Dawn-esque way. I will include a link below if you're curious about this. You can go read it yourself. I'm less familiar with this aspect of it. But that also kind of stems from the Severiat Zera, and it explains why the Golden Dawn color scales are the way they are. Generally, that's the breakdown of the four worlds and then the different skills and how they're associated. One of the other kind of major applications that we see with the colors and their use in the occult is with the planetary colors. And what's interesting about the planetary colors, and I was ranting to both Hanny and Phil before we started this, is that there doesn't seem to be really like one correct quote unquote like agreed upon definition of what these colors should be. It does seem to be something we've all kind of just like agreed upon over time. And it seems to be taken primarily from Solomonic magic, at least in the Western tradition, as to what's commonly accepted. But even then, that's not always true. There does seem to be a little bit of draw from the scales that I mentioned above related to Kabbalah and the Golden Dawn. For instance, the king scale represents, like I said, the seven prismatic colors of the rainbow. So red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. And it holds a lot of similarities, but specifically Saturn is indigo instead of black. Jupiter is violet instead of green or blue. And Venus is yellow when it's sometimes green or like pink. Mercury in the king scale is green. And then the moon is blue instead of silver. So there, there are definitely some differences. And the queen scale seems actually to fit it a little bit better, but also not without exception. Of course, like I said earlier, we have plenty of other sources that would have their own colors. So the key of Solomon honors Saturn with black, Jupiter in blue, Mars with red, the sun is gold or yellow, Venus is green, and Mercury as a rainbow or sometimes orange. And the moon is silver. But even Agrippa had his own distinctions. And those even changed. He couldn't, like, decide on what he wanted. There's actually a really great post by Sam on his blog, Digital Ambler, that gives a really good background to all of this if you're curious. That I will definitely link below and I encourage everybody to read. Out of curiosity, though, if you had to associate the colors with the days, what would they be to you? Okay. I'll go first to make a fool of myself. And then everyone else will sound better. Okay. Monday... Is blue. Tuesday is green. Don't make those faces, Astra. <laughs> you asked the question. You're getting your answer. Wednesday is yellow. Thursday is orange. Friday is red. Saturday is black. And Sunday is white. First colors that popped in my head. I don't know. Tuesday is definitely green, though. I will die on that hill. <laughs> You are so wrong. Okay. <laughs> I, I like that with when um, you said Saturday is black, uh, there, was, there was a nod of approval from Astra, like, yes, this is correct. <laughs> what am I? Mine are, Monday is definitely yellow, like a pale yellow, like a, like a yellow of sadness. Um, Tuesday is blue. Wednesday is green, certainly green. Thursday is like a bluey purple. Friday, I think, is orange. Saturday, I don't actually have strong feelings on, but I feel might be red. And Sunday is either gold or white. And you think that I'm wrong, but actually, Cap sent me the tie colors at, for the um, for the planets, and they are not super far off. So I'm feeling slightly validated. Like, and this is important as well because culturally, the, we just have so many different associations. Like they don't seem to be set in stone. 
Yeah, for sure. Culturally, it's definitely independent, but it's it actually interesting even because even in Western culture, like the Solomonic tradition, at least in the ceremonial and the grimoire traditions, those colors like are what is used and there's very little kind of, of changes being made, which is why Wednesday being green. No, <laughs> I can't. Um, anyways, <laughs> but like even within the Western tradition. So you'll have people say that Jupiter is associated with green because of money, right? And abundance and prosperity. But in the Solomonic tradition, Jupiter is blue and Venus is green. Venus in kind of general society is considered like pink or, you know, red, but not like, not like Mars red. It's green in, in Solomonic tradition. So it definitely depends. I mean, even Agrippa had his, had his specifics. I think he, he gave Saturn to blue sometimes. And there were a couple of other weird ones. But it is interesting. It is definitely very culturally dependent. We did a little thing in our Discord where we asked people this question to tell us what colors they associated each day of the week with. And it was really interesting to see the responses for sure. Out of curiosity, were your answers based on anything from like Hellenic polytheism or was it just like your? Okay. I didn't know if it was just specific or not. We were shaking our heads for those since everyone is listening. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You can't see. They were They were shaking their heads now. Um, Something um, I was wondering about is whether some of this is based on, I don't think sympathetic magic is the right word, but just kind of general associations. So I can see maybe somebody saying that Venus is associated with green because Venus is associated with fertility. And you think of like spring and the earth and, you know, things becoming green. Or alternatively, you can also think pink because of the kind of color of love. So it's it's kind of to do with points of reference more than it is to do with any kind of one universal thing. That's just my theory anyway. I mean, possibly. I, I don't know. I think there's also some maybe some connection to the Tree of Life and the Sephirot, but I am not an expert in that, so I'm not going to speak on it. Next up, we're talking about Feng Shui. So Feng Shui, in its simplest terms, is a type of Chinese geomancy in which the goal is to use energy forces to harmonize an environment. Now, this is spread throughout many cultures as well. Feng Shui is also practiced uh, by some people in Japan as well. There are dozens and dozens of schools of Feng Shui, and I'm not going to get into all of that. And also, I don't feel like I'm particularly qualified to talk about that. So I'm just going to talk very generally about how colors show up in Feng Shui. Uh, Feng Shui, like many other uh, concepts in uh, Chinese esotericism, is very much tied up to the five Chinese elements, which are called the Wuxing, the Wuxing, and the eight trigrams. Bagua, which is the eight trigrams, is these fundamental principles of reality as part of the Taoist cosmology. So colors are one of the many associations found in this philosophy. And if you've ever looked into Feng Shui at all, you might recognize some of the terms like the azure dragon, the vermilion bird, the white tiger, the black tortoise. And each of those, like the azure dragon, is associated with the east. It's associated with the spring equinox. It's associated with the Chinese character bird, as well as Scorpius, which I believe is a constellation or a star, something astrologically or astronomically. So each of these named guardians, they're called the four symbols of Chinese constellations. They are associated with a color. And they're also associated with things like the seasons and organs and cardinal directions to an hour and a day. And like, if you look at the chart online of all the associations between these symbols of the constellations, it's just like a never ending document. So the colors associated uh, with Feng Shui, as well as Wu Qing, which is the Chinese five elements, and specifically there's an intersection between these elements that they go through a process 
I'm not going to get into all of that. Again, I don't fully understand all of it, but they have sort of charts that show you how certain elements, certain colors repel each other, certain elements harmonize with each other, certain elements don't really interact. But the five Chinese elements and their associated colors are as follows. Metal, which is associated with indigo and white. Fire is associated with crimson. Wood is associated with green and scarlet. Water is associated with black. And earth is associated with purple and yellow. I find those color associations very interesting, especially water being associated with black and earth being associated with purple and yellow. I wonder if earth being associated with purple and yellow has anything to do with those being very expensive dye colors. I don't know. Well, yellow can be a cheap dye color, but true yellow is an expensive dye color at that time. So I don't, I don't know where those associations are, but that is definitely uh, starkly different than what we usually see as associations with those specific elements. I wonder if a lot of color elements, and I didn't look into this, so I, I have no idea, if some of them come from like metallurgy at the time as well, or like working with metals, because a lot of like for those, this is actually funny. So back when I taught general chemistry to my students, the metals lab was always their favorite because they would mix things together and they'd see really pretty colors because the metals do that. That's something they think maybe might have had an influence in like Renaissance magic or the, mid the Middle Ages when those kind of things were being created. For instance, like vermilion, I think was made by grinding cinnabar, which is mercury sulfide, it was red. And then back in those times, when you ground like metals or certain elements together, you would get a particular color. I do wonder if that maybe has something to do with it. These associations that people had, maybe it also had some influence on like the folk associations that people would have within their specific traditions as well. I think that's probably a little bit more accurate. And then finally, the colors in folk magic. Now, folk magic is obviously not a ubiquitous thing. Every culture has its own form of folk magic. And within those forms of folk magic, you see a lot of unique color correspondences. And like, for example, there are a, some more universal colors tend to be strong associations with the color red just due to its representation often as being of Christ's blood that could be protective that could be spiritually related like related to divination or something that is holy and then there's also associations like the virgin mary is associated with the color blue so there are some i wouldn't say they're ubiquitous folk magic associations but when you look at like traditional it's just those colors often have a lot of importance just because of certain folk traditions having a heavy emphasis on, say, the Bible of certain kinds. I feel like in the folk traditions, it's much more symbolic, right? Like the colors mm -hmm. have a very strong association with a particular symbol, whatever that might, bite, might be within that particular folk tradition, but it's very much so symbolic. A lot of them are also very, like, sympathetically mm -hmm. related. Something that is red is oftentimes in folk magic tied to, say, healing, because that's what blood, or like if someone has a disease of the blood you would use something that was red right. to symbolize that so a lot of it is also very sympathetic at least in that regard which we see with like folk herbalism as well like certain plants that look like an organ become associated with that organ we can talk about how colors show up in our practice is it something that like we give a lot of thought to is it something that you think is very important is it something that you just purely aesthetic or do you think of it as having a deeper spiritual meaning 
I feel kind of thoroughly overwhelmed by all the different associations, to be honest, because I feel like you can look at all these different cultural associations. You know, you can look at the classical planetary colors like Astra described, or you can use kind of a, a feng shui system, for example. Not that I particularly do myself, but it's not like there's a, there are hard and fast rules. And so for me, it's never been all that important um, other than in, say, a symbolic way, because I don't work within the bounds of um, a particular strict system. So it, it's kind of an adjunct in my practice because I, I'm just overwhelmed by the, the lack of structure and rules, if that makes sense. I mean, I have a very particular color structure <laughs> that comes from the tradition that I practice, and I do not stray from that very much. It, it is interesting, though, because when I first became a ceremonial like practitioner, the planetary colors were different than the Solomonic colors, because in a lot of the planetary like magic books that you might read, they do typically associate it more with like what the planets are associated with. So something like Jupiter, which has been like being a benefic and abundance and opening, you know, opportunities and all of that. Very, it's, I mean, it is usually associated with green and Venus being like love and all that. You'll see like pinks and reds and all of, of that kind of stuff. So for a long time, I didn't have those associations until I found Solomonic magic and preferred like that particular root in there within the Solomonic tradition, like every single correspondence you can have is really crucial to the working. And so color correspondences play a huge role in most of my workings now, like so much as you know, if I'm doing a working, it's like everything will for Jupiter, like everything will be blue. The tablecloth will be blue. The camea will be drawn out of like blue paint. The marker, like the chalk marker will be blue. If I can find a blue bowl to do incense in, like that'll be blue. Like everything will be blue. I will be wearing blue. So color correspondences in that part play do play a very big part in my rituals. So yeah, I think it just depends on your, your praxis. For me, colors actually do play a fairly important role when I'm engaging in folk magic traditions they they are very like upg based when it comes to like deities for example or i will use colors that i so the colors that i tend to use when i am like i don't know doing a ritual that is like specifically hellenic polytheus based i will look up the color associations of that particular deity which lo and behold it's usually purple yellow or gold or silver um which are all pretty readily accessible colors to us now so i will look up if there are colors are associated with like a specific festival or a specific shrine and go from there but other than that like a lot of it a lot of them are like winter festivals or spring festival and they'll use flower colors or green or something so it it more plays an, an aesthetic role in that aspect except when i'm engaging in like necromancy or something which is very strong color associations with like white and black. But other than that, like if I'm doing full charms or something, which I, I don't do like full spells, like I don't do spells, but I'll do little like charms. I will tend to defer to, I don't know, the, the color correspondences that I associate or the tradition, color correspondences of that particular tradition. And I will do the same thing afterwards. Like I'm blue candle blue cup, blue writing, and make it go all out. I do think that's important to like be able to be flexible, right? So for instance, like if I was if I was performing a more folk-based like spell, um, I might not use the particular color within like the Solomonic tradition. I might use like a, yeah, I don't know, 
green for Jupiter, for instance, for like money and abundance. So I think it also, it helps to be flexible with your workings um, and use maybe the color correspondences that would work best within like what you're doing. It's funny, a lot of ceremonial magicians are like married to the specific colors used in their traditions, but I think having some flexibility can actually be a good thing. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Um, and I just wanted to touch on this because you mentioned it, Phil. Uh, it's really easy to use color correspondences now. So because, you know, we have access to dyes and, you know, like modern, um, colorful things, whereas back, um, you know, in sort of ancient times, it might be that the ingredients to generate those dyes were quite scarce. And so it might have been a little bit more of a process and a ritual in and of itself, a devotional act to actually create those dyes. And so it's just interesting to consider how our experience um, in a modern world differs to people back in the day. Something I wanted to ask, maybe a bit provocative, but... With so many color systems, how do you know which ones to use, and how do you know which ones are? How do you know which ones work? Is it just experience, or is it? Is it? Does it just feel right to you? Like, how how do you work it out? Yeah, I guess both of it is. It's both experience how it how it feels in that moment. Like for example, I associate the color blue with truth. This is partially because there's an old like English charm poem about bluebells and truth like a short little poem about them and i used that charm once had everything be blue and it let me tell you people were spouting some truth and so ever since then it's been something that i have associated with truth yeah i mean i don't i don't think that pretty much as long as you have a reason for a color i don't think that any color is going to be particularly wrong now if you associate like black with truth that might be a bit odd because i i mean just off the top of my head i can't think of any correlation between the two unless you're like like night well night usually conceals but but i think as long as there's i don't know if it works it works and it's hard to explain why and like for the days of the week for example totally arbitrary that's those were the colors that like came to my mind <laughs> and like i have felt like work so i yeah i don't know a lot of it is experiment and also just choosing what you think feels right i will say that in my experience like personally upg i have found that especially when i'm doing more rigid ceremonial rituals within like a particular tradition the color i mean they do matter the colors do matter like the experience and the efficacy of the spell is dependent upon those correspondences, the color, the incense, like, like all, do not change it. Like, <laughs> it plays such a large role. So in that particular way, like, yes, it's very crucial. And it's not something that I would adjust at all. But I've also had other experiences, like when I initially did planetary workings, where it, it didn't seem to matter quite as much. Although I will say that once I, once I moved to Solomonic magic, my workings went a little better. But yeah, so it is interesting. Like based on my own experience, I would say yes, it does like matter quite significantly. But again, I think it's based on tradition. And I think in folk magic, maybe less so. It's more sympathetic in nature. So whatever feels right is probably what will work best. Kind of funny. I was gifted a whole lot of colorful candles, I think maybe almost exactly a year ago. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm so excited to use these. I'm going to use them for time workings. Haven't touched them. Every time I just default back to incense or a white candle because it's just so familiar. So definitely need to experiment a little bit more with that and, and feel out what's right for me. Yeah, do your own control. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I use birthday candles. Like, honestly, that's 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 how I know 
that the Solomonic method works better for me is because I compared I compared notes. I would do the same spell in two different methods. And it's like it was really good this time and it was still good, but like less good the other time. I mean, yeah, that's why we keep records, right? So we can go back and be like, yep, this worked, this didn't work. Out of curiosity, actually, while we're while we're talking about it, what are your thoughts? Because this is something we mentioned before with like rosemary being a substitute for all herbs. What do you think about like a white candle being a substitute for all colors? Not black, um, surely. Not black. You can't substitute white for black. No, I don't think white can be substituted for black. Well, I mean, I tend to, even though I don't, so when I do other types of rituals, I just use like whatever candle I have. I tend to use beeswax candles, which are yellowy for everything if I'm not doing like a specific charm. I don't know. I feel like white and black can be substituted for other colors, just or at least white, at least because white is just, it's, it's devoid of any color. I feel like any color can be put upon it, if that makes sense. And maybe black can also be substituted for everything because it has every color. Maybe you're pulling out a specific color. I don't know. I mean, I think white can be a stand-in better than rosemary can be a stand-in for any herb because white is literally a blank slate. <laughs> but I think it, it will be more powerful if you choose a specific color. To me, when I think of white, I think about the electromagnetic spectrum and how white is just a combination of all of those. So yeah, it's, in a way, it's a stand-in because it's it it contains, in, a, in an almost kind of literal physical sense, it contains every color. So it makes sense. And um, yeah, I'm quite basic with my with my workings that I mentioned, so I'm happy to use white for everything. I mean, I think it makes sense. I also like think about it the same way you, as you do, Hanny. Um, like the prism, right, where the white light goes in, and it's you know split into all the colors. At the same time, though, I think it's sometimes hard because like I associate white with like purity and highest self, whatever, all of that. And in that case, it's like hard to separate that from like that association from the white candle and asking it to be something else. So like for me personally, I would have to use the color candles easier. Um, but I definitely do think like it would stand in because white is just like all the colors, well, absence of color rather. I have a note here that says I forgot to dunk on how ugly the golden dawn colors are. So this is me Listen. just telling you that if you don't know what those colors are, they're so ugly and I need you to look them up. Sorry, you know you explain the spiritual um, meaning behind them, but they it doesn't matter. They are hideous. We're going out on a bang here. This is we've, we've witnessed the breakup of TTC. Yeah. I'm gonna get hexed. <laughs> You're gonna get hexed by Astra. <laughs> I mean, no, honestly, they are really ugly. Like, I'm not, I'm not gonna defend it. <laughs> but despite despite how ugly they are, they have a purpose. They have a meaning. They're there for a reason. Actually, it's so funny. I was reading this is a long time ago, actually, but um, the Planetary Magic book by Dennings and Phillips, which is coordinated with the Arm Solace tradition. And actually, this is elsewhere too. But the lawman that you create when you do planetary workings, the colors clash so badly. <laughs> They were describing how to do it, and I was just like, "This is gonna be so ugly." Like, I, like I totally get it. Like, the, the correspondence is the colors made perfect sense, but I was just sitting here envisioning it. Like, I have to wear that. No, no wonder people think ceremonial magicians sometimes look like crazy people with the colors that we put together. Anyways, okay. I'm sorry to all my fellow ceremonial magicians. I do appreciate the colors. <laughs> I promise. Yeah, please don't hex us. <laughs> okay. 
on that note, we'll call it. Um, I hope you enjoyed the episode. A little chaotic as it might have been. Fel will make us sound smart like she always does, which we greatly appreciate. But if you haven't, go ahead and do check out our Instagram because Fel is going to be posting some really cool stuff about this episode in the coming week. And then we also have a Discord if you are curious about that. Um, we have both occult and science discussions there. I think Hanny and I are actually presenting a paper this upcoming week on gut microbiome stuff, which should be fun. And then, yeah, we just chat and have a fun time. It has grown so much, too. So thank you to all of you who listen. We've had a lot of new people join, which has been really exciting. But yeah, that's it. We'll see you later. (laughs) Have a good week, everyone.